Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we'll read the first 14 verses of that chapter as we continue in a series on the parables of Jesus Christ. Here, the parable of the great banquet or the wedding feast. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we come to you and uh, are thankful uh, for your word. We are thankful that we can hear it explained and applied from week to week, and yet we know it will profit nothing unless the Holy Spirit who calls this word to be written long ago and far away comes today and makes it alive in our hearts. So we pray that he would circumcise our ears, and that your word would enter into our hearts, <coughs> that there would take root, and that there would bear fruit for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 22, we're going to read the first 14 verses. This is the word of God. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, <clears throat> both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Will you come to the feast is the question with which you and I are presented by this text this morning. Three points. First of all, the rejected invitation, verses 1 through 7. Secondly, those who came and responded positively to the invitation, verses 8, 9, and 10. And then the somewhat cryptic conclusion in verses 11 through 14, the necessary clothing for the feast. So the rejected invitation, those who came, and the necessary clothing. In Revelation chapter 19, heaven is pictured as a marriage supper of the Lamb, a great feast, if you will. Here, Jesus says his kingdom is like a king who gave a great feast uh, for his son. Today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a foretaste of this great feast uh, or marriage supper of the Lamb, which Christians will enjoy throughout eternity. There are many lessons uh, to be found here. Uh, there are lessons to be found regarding non-Christians. There are lessons to be found for those of us that are 
Christians, and there are lessons to be found here about evangelism um, as well. So let's, uh, let's dig into this. First of all, uh, the rejected invitation, verses 1 through 7. The elements of the parable are somewhat self-explanatory. Uh, the king is God. The son is Jesus Christ. The messengers, all right, are the prophets uh, that were sent to Israel. Uh, the banquet is the marriage supper of the lamb. And uh, note uh, a couple of things here. First of all, look at verse 3. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. So an invitation had gone out, no response. God sends his servants to those who had already been invited, all right, but they would not come. Then in verse 4, God sends servants out again. So you have three invitations being issued to come to the feast. And yet, the invitations go unanswered, all right? And to whom is the invitation extended? Well, if you're a good student of the Bible, you'll know that this has to do with Israel, all right? That, uh, as the prophet says, all day long I, I hold out my hands to a stubborn and obstinate people, but they do not come to me. The prophets were messengers of God's covenant that God sends to his unbelieving and disobedient people to call them back to a relationship with him. And again and again and again and again, over and over and over throughout the centuries, God sends his servants, uh, the prophets, uh, to his people Israel to call them to repent to turn from their sin, to return to him, to restore the relationship which their sin has fractured, and yet over and over again, they fail to respond. Psalm 95, you might want to look at a couple of references, just so you see this is not just my theological interpretation or predilection. Psalm 95 uh, and verse 10, we read this. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. God's own covenant people. The church, if you will, of the Old Testament. The nation of Israel, all right, does not hear or heed the word of God when he calls to them. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 one of the prophets sent by the Lord, or if you will, one of the servants, as Jesus mentions them here. Isaiah chapter 1 um, and verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged from me, God says, of his own people, Israel. Then last reference, there, of course, this is repeated. We could look at any one. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7. It's particularly informative and instructive. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Jeremiah 
beginning verse 23. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's the central promise of the covenant, all right? We talk a lot about the covenant here in this church, all right? What's a covenant? It's a relation that God makes and guarantees by his word. The central promise of the covenant is I will be your God and you will be my people, all right? So God calls them, walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. God is not a mean God. God is not a miserly God. Not, God is a God who wants the best for his people. And he calls them and says, the way that you're going, the way that you're living, it's going to end in death. It's going to end in destruction. It's not good for you. I want it to be well for you. Return to me. Listen to me. Obey me. Heed me. But, verse 24, they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, how much time has transpired in that one sentence? The duration of time that God has beseeched his people, sought after his people, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And Jesus says, the invitation went out. You didn't respond. So I sent my servants, come to the feast. No response. Again, third time, he sends his servants. No response. A couple of things we learn from this. God is patient. God is long-suffering. Do not, do not miss that, all right? From the verses that we read in the Old Testament, from the day I brought you out of Egypt until now, when Jeremiah is speaking to them. Throughout that whole time, Israel, who had been called to, Israel, who had been sought by the Lord, Israel, who had been pleaded with by God, rejected, ignored, did not hear, did not obey, did not heed his word. God is patient. Three times, Jesus says, the invitation is sent God is patient and God is long-suffering towards sinners. But there comes a point where God's patience runs out. We ought not to be mistaken about either one of those things. The book of Amos, you could almost entitle the whole book, When God's Patience Runs Out. And God gives them over. And the northern tribes of Israel are never heard from again. God brings his wrath, his condemnation, and his judgment upon them. For they did not listen to his voice. They did not heed his pleas. They did not turn from their sin. And they did not return unto him. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But there comes a point when his patience runs out. Look at the text. 
<clears throat> Verse 6. The rest received the servants, treated them shamefully, killed them. That's what they did with the prophets. Verse 7, the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That's what happened in 70 AD. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records for us how God once again uses a foreign power, this time Rome, to be the executors of his judgment, his wrath, and his, uh, his devastation on his own people, Israel. Look at the response of the people in verse, verse 5. They paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business. The parallel text in Luke chapter 14, we won't turn there and look at it, suffice it to say, all the people made excuses. It's very common. I'm talking to unbelievers. Why they won't, don't want to be Christians. I was just talking to somebody this week. I had coffee with them the other day. And they were telling them about someone who said, Oh, I don't have time to go to church. I run a business. I have work to do. You don't know the stress that I'm under. I don't have time. Excuses, excuses, excuses. God's patient. God's long-suffering. But do not presume upon that. Look at the text. In Luke 14, we're told that some of them were indifferent. And some of them were hostile. You need to realize that if you're going to, if you're a Christian, you're going to talk to other people about Jesus Christ, of their need to repent and believe, their need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. If you're going to talk to them and say, Jesus is the only way to the Father, he is the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but through him. If you're going to proffer the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, these are the reactions you'll meet with, the same reactions that we see in the text. I've mentioned this before, allow me to tell, tell you again so that you're, you're prepared for this when it happens, all right? People ask me as I travel around the country, they say, oh, preaching the gospel, working out on the streets in New York City, you must encounter a lot of opposition, a lot of hostility. I said, remarkably not. The main reaction I get from people when I talk to people is, what's the price of bananas today? They could care less. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, in love the Father sends him to bear their sins, to pay the penalty for their sins, to endure the punishment which they deserve. <sighs> What's the price of bananas today? Could care less. Or hostility. We are increasingly a persecuted minority, or we will be, in a hostile environment. Get ready. Get ready. For the opposition that's come, judgment is racing towards us. More upon that in a moment. Indifference and hostility. Please let me encourage you, if you're a Christian and you meet with indifference and hostility, don't take it personally. All right? You must not take it personally. 
It's only because you are a representative of Jesus Christ that they have that reaction to you. It's only because you're a mouthpiece of Jesus Christ that they have that reaction to you, all right? It's Jesus that they're indifferent to, right? And it's Jesus that they hate. They hate the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ and reject him. But don't take it personally. God's patience is not infinite. If I could just be granted a moment of personal privilege here, this was me before I was a Christian. I was Paul the procrastinator. Why would I do today what I can put off till tomorrow? People witnessed to me, people talked to me, people told me about the claims of Jesus Christ, and I was like, I don't have time. There's a, there's a game on today, don't you know? I, I have this to do and I have that to do and put it off, put it off, until somebody finally convinced me to go to a Christian worship service. It was in Baltimore, Maryland. And I went and the preacher that day was preaching about the wiles of Satan and how he keeps people from becoming Christians. He said, you know what Satan's most successful tactic is? Put it off another day. Put it off another day. And it was like I had had a spear thrust to me, nailing me to the chair. That was me. Excuse after excuse after excuse not to repent and believe. If you're here this morning and you're making excuses, let them end. God is patient. God is long-suffering. He's calling you today to turn from sin, to trust in him. Do not make any more excuses. Don't put it off another day. Today is the day of salvation. You are not here by chance. You are not here by accident. You are not here by uh, uh, coincidence. You are here because God arranged the circumstances to have you here and hear him speak to you today. Today is the day of salvation. Well, a few things. First of all, this has to do with the Jewish people, as I mentioned previously. If you read Romans chapter 9 through 11, and we're not going to turn there and go through that, that's really another sermon for another time, if you will. What Paul tells us is that Israel has been hardened in part. And that is judicially hardened for their rejection of Jesus. God has taken the kingdom from them and given it to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11. And they are under the judicial hardening of God. And as Paul says elsewhere, today when the scripture is read, a veil remains over their eyes so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah and Savior of Israel. That's why it's so remarkable when Mike DeZigo and Scott Schwartz and Stephen Somer, Jews by race, Jews by birth, believe in Jesus, that's, that's 
extra miraculous. Of course, miraculous when anybody believes, because the work of the Spirit, it's a work of grace. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. For a Jew to escape the judicial hardening of God and believe in Jesus is extra remarkable. I encountered that this week when Kevin Wattell, intern from the Canadian Reformed Theological College, and I, I was showing them around New York. We were walking down Broadway uh, this week, and uh, the Orthodox uh, Jews were out um, at Broadway, and I think it was Liberty Street, and they had a big RV with the picture of Menachem Schneerson on the side and uh, calling for Mashiach, right? So uh, as the Lubavitch sect does, they ask passersby, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? Lubavitch are kind of evangelistic, but they're only evangelistic to get nominal Jews to become Orthodox Jews, right? Not to get Goy to become. So he said, no, 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 we're not Jewish. We're Christians. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. And you know what? Menachem Schneerson can't be the Messiah. He's disqualified by the Bible. I began to talk to him about Micah chapter 5. I asked this young man, I said, where is the Messiah in the Tanakh, in the scriptures, right? The Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim. In the Tanakh, where, is it, uh, where does the scripture say that Messiah needs to be born? He had no idea, no clue. I said, Bethlehem. Where is Menachem Schneerson born, I asked him, knowing full well he was born in Eastern Europe. He can't be the Messiah. He's disqualified. He doesn't meet the biblical qualification. You know what his response was? Jewish law doesn't teach that. <laughs> kind of laughed to myself. I didn't want to laugh at him. But I asked him, I said, well, what has more authority? The Tanakh or Jewish law? He couldn't answer. My point is this. There's a lot that could be said here, right? But the, the point is this. He had no clue what the Bible said. He's blind to think that some guy from Eastern Europe is the Messiah prophesied and promised in the scriptures of the Old Testament is the height of folly and nonsense. And unless God opens their eyes and they turn to look upon the one whom they have pierced and mourn for their sin and turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, they will be doomed, just as Jesus talks about in this text. And that ought to concern every one of us who loves people made in the image and likeness of God, whatever race they are. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the Jewish people. And the kingdom has been taken away from them and given to the Gentiles. It's an important lesson about God as well. God's patience and long-suffering run out. You and I, in 21st century North America, especially in New York City, are experiencing this right now. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Let me explain to you what I just said. Romans chapter 1. A very well-known passage which isn't very well explained or um, understood, if you will. If I could make that statement, hopefully I'm able to back it up for you. Verse 18. Pay, pay attention. 
For the wrath of God is revealed. What's the tense there? Present tense. Thank you, Scott. Present tense, right? It doesn't say that the wrath of God will be revealed, future. It's not talking about the wrath of God on judgment day. No, he says the wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed. Why? Look at the text. From heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived uh, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. By the way, this is why somebody who's never heard the gospel in the middle of the South Pacific or in the middle of the deep jungles of the 1040 window, right? Uh, is God going to send them to hell even if though they've never heard? Are they going to be held responsible? Yeah, because of what God reveals in creation. They're without excuse. Not my opinion, not my theology. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're without excuse, right? Let's read on. For although they knew God, nobody can say they didn't know God. They know God through creation, right? All creations, now stretch your finger, pointing to God. They did not honor him as God, nor give thanks. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's he talking about? He's talking about the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense. Why? Because everybody knows God. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. And what did he give them up to? Sexual immorality of the worst kind. Homosexual lusts among men and women. What's the point? The point is, that is the wrath of God being revealed. When you see not a day, not a week, but a month given over to celebrate sexual immorality... That is the wrath of God being revealed. What's my point? My point is, God is patient. God is long-suffering. But there comes a time when God says, you want it? You got it. You want that kind of conduct? You want that kind of behavior? You want that lifestyle? You got it. You got it. That is his wrath being revealed. An added emphasis on today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, turn and trust in him. The rejected invitation. But secondly, those who came, look at verse 9 in our text, Matthew 22. Go therefore, he says to his servants, to the main roads and right to the wedding feast, as many as you can find. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. In Luke chapter 14, it's, he says, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Bring in whoever you can. All are invited. There's no one to be excluded. The perverse, the violent, it matters not. The invitation goes to all. Come, for the feast is ready. Will you come to the feast? Will you come? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your behavior. It can be the worst. It can be the most sexually immoral. It can be the most disgusting behavior no matter what. Come, come, hear and heed and come to the feast. Come. In Luke 14, the instruction given by Jesus is, is, is even more emphatic. It's compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. Invite them aggressively to come in. Those, no matter how wicked, how evil, how morally degraded, how twisted, how violent, how they can all come. Come. Will you come to the feast? It matters not. The invitation, J.C. Ryle says, is full, broad, and unlimited. I was reading this week a book, and the author quotes Preston Sprinkle, whom I've read with profit in the past. Sprinkle, this author says, shares the story of a man named Alan. Alan suffered from gender dysphoria, which is what uh, the condition that leads to uh, transvestitism and transsexualism, all right? Suffered from gender dysphoria, bravely shared with a Christian friend his desire to be a woman and his attraction to other men. How this friend responded was a pivotal moment in Alan's life. He expected to hear condemnation, but instead heard words of mercy. Alan's friend assured him that God didn't hate him and that he was lovable to God and others. Alan gave his life to Jesus and believes that without that word of grace, he would have transitioned to living as a woman. Commenting on this, Sprinkle says, It was love, not logic, that changed Alan's heart. People are rarely argued into the kingdom. How important that is for you and for me. This author goes on, what a difference it made in one gender-confused person's life to be received with compassion and grace, to have found someone who would listen, not shame or condemn, and to be reassured of God's love. To paraphrase Warren Wearsby, another author, love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. What if someone's road to healing started with the same needs we all have, to belong, to be accepted, to be loved. I often point out to you question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, such a marvelous evangelistic tool. Those of us who go out on the street and Saturdays in the park, we use it when we talk to people. What's your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
people who are alienated, people we just had the Surgeon General of the United States tell us that loneliness is epidemic in our country. And we have a, a teaching that says, I belong. I belong. I am not a leaf floating aimlessly on the wind, directed by the rivers of fate, wherever it will direct me. No, I belong. I've been loved with an eternal love from before the foundation of the world. And in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came and shed his blood for me. Remember Galatians 2.20, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. This is a message we take to the world. A world that's dying in loneliness. A world that's suffering from broken relationships. Dysfunctional families. There's something that's bigger than you. There's something to belong to. To belong to Jesus Christ. To know his love. To know him. It's an amazing message that we're called to take to a world that lives in darkness. Let's look at this concluding verses, 11 through 14, this necessary clothing. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. How'd you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. King said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. Hell is real. Jesus spoke of no subject more than hell. So it becomes essential then to understand what's this wedding garment that alone will keep you out of hell. Going to the feast in and of itself will not keep you out of hell. Jesus says, How'd you get in here without a garment? No, you need the garment. What's the garment? Now, James Boyce, whom I love, listen to him every Sunday for 30-odd years, right? In his commentary, which are just sermons, right? He says, well, it's very clear. The garment is the righteousness of Christ. Okay, well, we're to be clothed with Christ. We're to be put on Christ. And we're certainly in need of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right, fair enough. But look at Revelation chapter 19. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Remember I told you that in Revelation 19, heaven is pictured as marriage supper of the Lamb? So you can see it, uh, the superscription there in verse 6, right? Marriage supper of the Lamb reads on verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now here's the exact feast that Jesus is talking about. And he makes reference to a wedding garment. And when John, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains what the garment is, he says it's the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, does this contradict what is elsewhere taught in the Bible about the necessity for the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to quote William Hendrickson. Always cite an authority, right? Don't rest on your own opinion. Cite an authority. William Hendrickson, beloved commentator, gifted scholar, right? He says this. 
The charge to put on such a robe cannot mean that a person should base his hope for salvation on his own goodness or moral fitness. This would be contrary to all of Scripture's teaching. Job 9, Isaiah 64, Romans 3, uh, Ephesians 2, Revelation 7. Does this mean then that the wedding garment is to be limited to the imputed righteousness which is ours by faith? That's justification, right? All right, big theological term. How, how are we made right with God? Justification, right? We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. First of all, you need your sins forgiven, all right? So Jesus has to go to the cross to be the substitute and the sacrifice to take the sins of his people on himself so that the wages of sin, the penalty for sin, can be paid for. The wages of sin is death. Jesus bears the sins of his people. He dies in place of his people. And he dies the death that you and I deserve. And he also lived the life that you and I have not lived. A life of perfect obedience. In order that that righteousness might be given to you. It's called the double, double imputation. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, he gives Jesus' sin, and he receives from Jesus righteousness. That's what's being referred to here by Hendrickson. goes on. He says, not at all. Not at all. The impu- talking about imputed righteousness. He goes on, he says, God not only imputes, but also imparts righteousness to the sinner whom he pleases to save. Although these two must be distinguished, they must not be separated. Careful study of those passages in Scripture that mention the robe with which we, the sinner, must be clothed, makes it clear that not only guilt must be forgiven, but the old way of life must be laid aside, and the new life to the glory of God must take its place. In other words, theologically, for you theologues, not just justification, but sanctification. There needs to be a change of life. There needs to be a turnaround. You're going this way, you're ignoring God, you're disregarding God, you're disobeying God. Repentance is turning around to God. Follow God, love God, obey God. That happens when God clothes you in his righteousness, and gives you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness to live according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that's what this is talking about here. Jesus is saying the wedding garment is not his righteousness imputed to those who have faith, although that's taught elsewhere in the Bible, Please don't go out and say, I'm denying that. Not. It's important. It's necessary. It's taught all over the Bible. But what he's referring to here is a changed life. The righteous deeds of the saints. A life that's lived in faithfulness to God, in loving, thankful obedience to God, in following his word, in living according to his word. That's the necessary garment. There's no living like hell and going to heaven. I don't care how many aisles you walked. I don't care how many times you said the sinner's prayer. I don't care if you're in church five times every Sunday. If there's not a change, it profits nothing. Now let me conclude as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning by having you turn to Psalm 36. 
We've looked at Matthew 22. Jesus is teaching about this great banquet. We've looked at Revelation 19. Heaven is portrayed as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Psalm 36, verse 7. David writes, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. What's my point as we come to a conclusion this morning? Is what a Christian looks forward to is having God himself as the feast. That's what makes heaven heaven. Is God, God himself, and Jesus will be there. Apart from that, it means nothing. So this morning we have a foretaste. And in the Lord's Supper, we're called to feast on God. We're called to eat his flesh. We're called to drink his blood by faith as he meets us in this meal and nourishes us and feeds us and says, I love you. Your sins are paid for. They're all taken care of. My righteousness is yours. Me and you, I will be your God. You will be my people. Come to the feast. And feast on Jesus. The only question is, will you come to the feast? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who doesn't pull punches, who tells it like it is. We thank you from the lessons of history that we learn in your dealings with the ancient people of Israel. We pray, Father, that you would uh, be with us, not only as we celebrate this feast as a, a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb in glory, but as we are commissioned by you to go forth and to let others know where they can find food that satisfies the longings of the soul, where they can find nourishment, where they can find rivers of living water in you. Help us to call others to come to the feast. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.